Hello, planeswalkers, and welcome to another episode of the Daily MTG Podcast. I'm your host, Trickjir. You're one of my co-hosts, Gavin Verhey. Teep is unfortunately not able to join us this week. But we come to you with another special guest from R&D, Dave Guskin. Gavin, Dave, how you guys doing? Pretty good, Trick. Pretty good. So what do you say? Take him down? <laughs> we have not room. We got him this week. Aren't you having brand? Is that... <laughs> He's only on loan. We'll, we'll, we'll oh, give him back to you guys in a couple of weeks. Uh, for the next couple of weeks, Gavin's up here with me and Tifa and Brand, the, the marketing team. That's why one of our brand managers is on paternity leave. So he's turned his coat temporarily <laughs> to fourth floor instead of the normal shiny third floor jacket he wears around the office. That's really nice jackets down there. <laughs> but to be fair, Dave, you're, you're almost Brand in, in a couple of ways. Uh, I guess. I do work very closely with Brand. Or did until... <laughs> yes. Yeah. But you're up here because, A, you're awesome. Oh, but B, you were the lead developer on Magic 2014. That's true, yeah. My first core set. My first design. First lead design. First lead design. First lead, lead development. development yeah. Why why, why you got to confuse the listeners like that, Dave? Sorry. Well, it's technically final design and development, so <laughs> I think of it as design, but yeah, I think it's development. Right. So you said it was your first development. Well, you eventually got there, but uh, let's talk about how you got to Wizards and, and what you did before and what you've done at Wizards before now. So Sure, yeah. So um, actually, my path to Wizards was quite long and arduous. Uh, <laughs> I started as a physicist, actually working in laboratories. and uh, Totally totally reasonable. I know. You, it's definitely what you would imagine. I mean, um, if you think about R&D, that does sound like the path to Wizards. <laughs> yeah, Everyone, like, you know, like <laughs> something crazy in science. That's so. true. So actually, for many years, almost seven, I would say, I applied to basically every job I saw on the website. It was like a novel writing position guy. I totally <laughs> Yeah, no problem. Oh, marketing? Yeah, let's do that. And then eventually, um, after I kind of transitioned into being a programmer in video games, which is what I went to after laboratory science, there was a position that was like, hey, be a programmer for Wizards. I was like, that's exactly me. So I applied, got the job, and then, of course, once I was inside the building, it was like, yes, I want to volunteer to work on whatever <laughs> magic stuff you have. So as I was doing my day job as a programmer, I playtested in R&D for FFL standard playtesting. I joined in for some drafts, and eventually I was asked to be on uh, the Alarm Reborn development team by Matt Place when he worked here, Right, which was it was awesome. It was really cool to be on a team of people who just love designing cards, uh, you know, making sure that the environment was fun to play. And then um, over time, a position became available in digital R&D for, for Magic, and I was working as uh, the Ryan Spain at the time, Magic right. Online rep. Uh, and then I transitioned to working for Duels. I actually led um, the 2013 Duels, and then um, I got... Uh, offered this job to be the lead of uh, M14. So, yeah, that's kind of the path. You also made Gatherer, too, right? Oh, yeah, sorry. Before I transitioned <laughs> from being a programmer into R&D, I moved on to programming Gatherer with Eric Berglund, and the two of us together made Gatherer as it is today. Right. So, yeah, I have that tool every single day. Yeah, me life. too, me too. It's a pretty good one. So like, whoever did that was a genius. <laughs> Probably uh, a physicist, in fact. I mean, it's not rocket science. I would know. Magic card data is pretty close to rocket scientists when you start diving into the, yeah, exactly the, the kind of, say, when you kind of look complex. At the anatomy of magic card. How many? I think we have something like 20, 20 SQL tables in our database just for just for holding all the characteristics of a card and all the possible configurations. Right. So that's all awesome stuff. But you also do something else, which is experience design. Oh yeah. Let's, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So that's my new job. Uh, starting almost a year ago, uh, I I was working more and more on like how to um, make a set kind of pop when it first came out. Right. That was a lot of the design work I was doing. And then uh, with Paul Levy, brand manager, uh, we ended up working on Return Ravnica's block together, where we did kind of this whole let's let's make planeswalker points into this thing where you can choose your guild and then you can 
fight for your guild and all this kind of factionalized stuff. And uh, that transit that led into being the experience designer for R&D, where every time a new product comes out and we want to make it you know pop and, and have it be like a big event in the store, that's the kind of stuff I work on. So things like the Hell Vault, the, the boxes for guilds, uh, and then this upcoming thing, which I'm pretty excited to talk about eventually, uh, for Theros. Yes, Theros is going to be a lot of fun. We'll definitely have you back on and talk about it when it's time. Oh, awesome, yeah. But let's, let's talk instead about what's coming out before Theros, and that is this upcoming weekend will be the M14 pre-release. Yeah. And so let's talk about what you guys did on M14. This is your first lead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was kind of uh, terrifying. Sure. My first lead. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I did have a really good ally, Aaron Forsyth, the director of Metro R&D, who's amazing at both design and development. Kind of, kind of a smart guy. Yeah, yeah. So he, he helped me out. He was my strong second. And then, um, yeah, our, our team. Uh, so initially, it was just me, and I worked with Mark Lovis, and he's, he's the lead designer of M14. And the two of us spent, I don't know, maybe six hours of meetings in the early morning when we both get in. Uh, to just talk through every part of the set and what his vision for the set was and like why things worked the way they did, and then we debated things. Um, and that was initially when he kind of pitched to me why to have slurs in the set, uh, why to target certain things at new deck builders and kind of make M14 the stepping stone from just starting Magic into becoming a deck builder, which I think there's a lot of really good stuff in the set for that. And then also... Um, just basically like talking about how it would play differently from previous core sets. Mark Lewis has actually led a previous core set, M12, so mm-hmm. we had good discussions about how this might be different than M12. That's awesome. How did you feel? I mean, you've worked on teams before. Talk a little bit about what it's like to actually be in the lead position as yeah. opposed to being on the team. No, that's, that's a good question. Um, so one of the things that I definitely found was needing to take a step back and saying, like, okay, normally I would just want to design everything myself, but I have this four or five people, depending on what day it was, like that can help me out. Like if I need to, I can bring in people and they'll help out. But these guys are here to take on some of the work that needs to be done. And you know, building a set of 20, 229 cards that just have to play in a certain way in a, a bunch of uh, across a bunch of different formats is a difficult task. Sure. And so identifying what the strengths and weaknesses were of each of my team members, talking with each of them, and kind of delegating tasks to them—that was something that I kind of had to learn on the job, I guess, with M14. And it worked out really well because um, I really think, even though our team was kind of a, I'll call it a ragtag team, because many people who were on my team were not like dedicated design and development people or they, they weren't on that many teams, they were mostly on uh, different kinds of products, everyone had their thing that they did really well. And so it was easy to kind of be like, okay, cool, I need you to lead the slivers part for a little while and come back to me with some suggestions. Oh, I need you to kind of think about pre-constructed decks and how we're going to do the intro packs here and that right. sort of stuff. So. Why don't we run down your team real fast and tell us kind of what they all brought to the table for you? Because it's always interesting when you're on a development team because everybody does yeah. something unique and brings a unique kind of uh, bit of knowledge to what's yeah. going on. Yeah, that's true. So um, I'll talk about Aaron last because uh, his role is kind of special. But uh, So let's see, Kelly Diggs, who's an editor in Magic R&D, um, he is like the casual constructed guy in my head. Like Whenever I had a question about like, do you think this is going to appeal to the more casual player or like how much you build the deck in a crazy wacky format around this? Uh, that was super, super useful to have him, his input there. Um, Max McCall, who's a developer, um, he's a digital developer. Uh, he was really helpful to have as like, Hey, I need you to like eyeball this and tell me like, is this going to work in terms of being able to build a limit environment around it? Or do you think this card is powerful enough in context of the other cards we've been talking about? And because he was also lead of uh, duels 2014, it was helpful for us to have like regular meetings about like is this going to appeal to the players coming from duels, and then uh, James Hada who works on Kaijudo and Duel Masters was actually really helpful as 
I need you to, to kind of give me an outside perspective. Like, he plays magic, but he's not entrenched in magic in the way the rest of us were. So he gave me a really good outside perspective and also just an idea of, like, what what is just instantaneously appealing? Because he was never afraid to speak his mind, <laughs> which, like, initially kind of was... It got over my scale a little bit, but like then I realized, no, no, he's just he cares so much about making this a great set that he's saying what he what he thinks, and that was really helpful right. to get. Um, and Aaron's role actually, I found, I mean, he's just an all star all around. But what was most helpful for me was uh, I would kind of take it in my head that there's something I need to focus on here, like oh, the tricky problem right now is slivers, and he would be like, take a step back and remember that there's this other stuff that's not finished. Like we need to talk about this. I'm like kind of helped me lay out a roadmap for where the set needed to go over the next few weeks, and that was always helpful to have him there, like, hey, Dave, we got to remember not to forget to bring in the core developers and have them point our set or, uh, you know, do some drafts. We haven't done that in a while. So. Right. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how that team came together around the idea of Slivers as a, a piece for Magic 2014. I mean, that's really one of the exciting things in this set. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Slivers are a returning mechanic. Um, Mark Lewis, I think, put it best when he said, well... At level one, when you're a Magic player, you're just like, these are cool cards, I want to throw all the cool cards I have together, or like, I'm a green player, just give me all the green cards. And then at like level three, you're starting to play limited, you know, maybe the cards will dictate what kind of deck you're building, or you're just like, I've got a cool idea for a standard deck, it puts together, you know, Thrag Tusk and Restoration Angel, and I'm going to make this sweet deck. But before that, before you get to that level, you don't really have the rails you need necessarily, and that's where I think Slivers just are an amazing way to give a player a way to... Um, you know, be on rails when they first make their, their they make take their forays, their first forays into deck building. Right. And with slivers, um, it's is a travel mechanic. The more of them you have, the better they all get, which is awesome. And then it's also what kind of teaches you know you can branch out, like try more than one color, figure out how you're going to make all of these cards of different colors interact. And it also gives you these hints, like hey, did you, are you missing something? Blue's got flying, that's really cool. Oh, you miss a first strike in, in red. So it really gives you this um, this stepping stone into becoming more of a deck builder on your own. Now, when you say on rails, what exactly do you mean by that? Oh, that's a good question. So um, I think each magic card uh, kind of is appealing in its own way and kind of says, like, ooh, this is a card I want to play or this is a card I don't really want to play. But uh, when I say rails, what I mean is that you're given um, kind of a, a structure in which to build your deck, like uh, maybe a, a framework or like the sketch of a deck. So with slivers, uh, because they all say slivers you control get, you're like, oh, I see. What I need is more slivers, as opposed to, for example, Doomblade, which is just like, oh, destroy target non-black creature. Well, I guess I'll use that against non-black creatures, but it doesn't really <laughs> give you a guide as to how to build a deck. So when I say rails here, what I really mean is like a, it's kind of a deck building guide or like a, a stepping stone to filling out the rest of a deck. It's a slightly more forceful hint to players. Yeah, hints would be a good way to put that, actually. Yeah. The way I always kind of measure it in my head is like you're in the mine cart level of a video game where if you jump into the mine cart and you're just on rails <laughs> yeah, and you're yeah, like yeah. going on down and it's like, all right, well, I'm on my path. Let's hope I pick the right direction. Right, you know? right. And it's still fun. It's fun to be, you know, being pushed into a certain direction. You try it out and you either like it or you don't, but you learn something on the way, we hope. So. Right. Let's talk also a little bit about one of the things with slivers that caused a lot of conversation is the change to the fact that Slivers now only affect your side. Right, yeah, we actually changed uh, a few things about Slivers. That, that's one of them. So uh, what we've done with about Lorwyn forward is, uh, well, forward from Lorwyn, right. is understand that like you can get mind-numbingly complex on the board, and uh, it's helpful to just have things that you know you need to care about as opposed to always having to worry about what's going on on your opponent's side, right. um, especially when you have a card in your hand that you want to play, 
and it's kind of subtly telling you not to play it sometimes because maybe it'll affect your opponent's stuff. This is especially relevant in limited when you're drafting or playing sealed because you don't have much, like you don't necessarily have much selection. So like those guys are definitely going to your deck, those those creatures, the slivers in this case. Uh, but then you're going to have to worry about oh, is my opponent playing them? Like how much worse are mine because they have theirs? How much better are theirs? Like it's definitely um, the way that it scales is bad because it just tilts over to one side really fast. Right. And so Players we wanted to overwhelm. Yeah, we wanted to avoid that. Um, both the brain melting part and also the I feel bad because I can't play my cards. Right. And the slivers weren't always slivers, right? Right. So uh, they actually, when they were in the design file, they were kind of adventurers, heroes, I'll call them. Uh, a very kind of uh, Dungeons and Dragons trope. And, uh, you know, the, the the design team really liked it, and they made a bunch of kind of top-down cards around that idea. But uh, the issue was we have a place that's kind of adventure world, that's Zendikar, and we also uh, didn't really have a way to use exactly the tropes they wanted in magic terms. Like, as the creative team thought about it, they're like, eh, we can't really do this as well. So it fell to me, as the lead developer, to like, okay, explore this. If we like it mechanically, let's figure out what we can do with it. So I started playtesting it with a lot of people outside the pit. You know, people outside of the company, we would do some playtests with, with these heroes, which I renamed uh, to make sure that people wouldn't think of them as heroes. I renamed them Sleen uh, as like a thing that felt alien, but wasn't. Uh, hero and wasn't Slitter, which I knew, you know, Mark and I talked about them as, they, as though they were Slitters. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that it was a neutral word that still conveyed the feeling of alienness. Right. Um, as we played, a lot of people were like, you know, this feels really familiar. Why, why isn't this just Slivers? And I said, well, no, it is. They are Sliver. That's the mechanic. Why don't you just call them Slivers? Right. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's, that's good feedback. I was just getting feedback from everyone. Right. Uh, so in the end, I decided, okay, well, we should probably just call them Slivers, and then they'll interoperate properly with the previous Slivers. Um, so that's what we did, and I think it worked out okay. I mean, I think they're, they're very fun on their own. They fit into existing Sliver decks, which is cool. And, you know, there's also the chance that they'll teach a player, like, hey, there's more to magic. You can explore and see, like, hey, this, these guys have been in magic for a while, and that's, that's kind of cool, too. Absolutely. I want to transition now to some more interesting stories that we've, we've gathered from you about Magic 2014. Sure. Let's talk about a card that I, I actually put on Reddit as the preview card, and that is Stryonic Resonator. Yeah, yeah, so Stryonic Resonator, for those of you who don't know, is a two-mana artifact, and its ability is two-mana tap. Copy target triggered ability you control, you may choose new targets for the copy. And so at first glance, I fell for the trap, which is <laughs> I was expecting it to be activated ability, because that's, that's largely what we've seen with this type of artifact. Yeah. It's a triggered ability, though, which is somewhat different and, might I say, quite Johnny-ish. Yes, yes, it is. Actually, uh, so this is one of the cards we talked about in, uh, in our initial meetings, Mark Lovis and I. Uh, I. We kind of front-loaded the cards that both of us were excited about, so... He front-loaded a card that was in this slot um, previously because he made Sundial the Infinite in M12, and he just loves these crazy, super right. Johnny cards. And I also, I, I consider myself to be a big Johnny, and I, I really appreciate those kinds of cards, too. But the card he had in the file was, like, ridiculous. I think it, like, did a bunch of exiling and then replaying the cards. And I'm just <laughs> like, Mark, this is never going to work, but I believe in your goal. Like, let's make a really fun, cool Johnny card. And, and to me, one of the things that was really appealing about Sundial is it's just very elegant, but then as soon as you see it, you kind of cock your head, and you're like, wait a minute, right. what exactly is going on here? And then eventually, like, the wheels start turning, and you're like, okay, something cool is going to happen. And, and we eventually came to this idea that, like, what if we chose something that we've never really interacted with and just, like, let you interact with it? And so triggerability is something I suggested, and Mark really liked it, so we tried it out for a while. Um, and this, this card kind of changed forms a little bit over time, but I think in the end, 
the promise that this card has, you can build around it. Like you can find all these trigger abilities and build some sort of crazy deck with it. And I think that's something that, that really shines through. And I, I love the reaction I read it. It seemed like they really loved it. Yeah. So. Uh, as, as most of you are aware, I have a Kiki-Jiki Commander deck that I absolutely love. And this deck fits perfectly into it. And when I was just telling someone, they're like, but Kiki-Jiki's ability is an activated ability. And I'm triggered ability. I was like, you're right, but my deck is built around largely triggered abilities that Kiki-Jiki abuses by making you know copies of creatures right. or whatever like that. Yeah, the resonator is kind of an extra right. Kiki-Jiki. And then someone pointed out also the... The interaction between it and bracers, uh, because yeah, you just copy. Bracers, yeah. you, you do, the illusionist bracers have a triggered ability which copies activated abilities. Yeah. So I can use the, the resonator <laughs> to copy the bracers and thus copy the activated ability. Yeah. Anyways, there's the Johnny setup. <laughs> get a creature, get the bracers on it, activate the ability, copy the use the bracers, copy the bracers. Right. It, it's a yeah, no, I know. I get excited. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we sometimes joked about Strand Resonator being the most resonant card. It was <laughs> <laughs> certainly the most resonant. Yeah, perhaps not resonant in the normal way we consider cards. So another interesting cycle that jumped out at us, and we, we previewed in serious fun, was a cycle, a three-card cycle you guys did. That's uh, uh, I'm going to choose one of the cards to name the cycle. Yeah. And that is uh, the Bubbling Cauldron cycle. Right, right, yeah. So originally... Um, so one thing that Mark Lobos and I talked about was, uh, you know, this is the fifth of the new series of course sets from right. 2010, and it's like, well, how many of these high fantasy tropes do we still have to talk about? And one thing that I think he did was really smart is, well, there's a lot of tropes that are combination tropes that we haven't really talked about. Um, one example of this would be like a dragon and a dragon slaying knight. Right. Um, so in his file, he had a bunch of these, and we, we saved many of them. I, I love the idea of them. And one of them was uh, three witches. So there was a rare witch, an uncommon witch, and an uncommon witch. But they were like a very loose cycle. I didn't feel like they were communicating this idea that like, you know, you can, in, in many, um, you know, plays and kind of mythology, there's like three witches and they're, you know, the fates is one, one way to think about this. Um, so I, I said, well, this trope doesn't really feel like it's being communicated. Can we make it a slightly different witch trope of like the witch and the ingredient and the bubbling brew? And he was like, yeah, that sounds interesting. Come up with something. So we came up with this, with a cycle, or I guess it's kind of a vertical cycle across colors. At Rare, we have the Bog Brew Witch, who uses her bubbling cauldron to cook the festering newts. Right. So, you know, you kind of get all the pieces in there. And, and it's kind of fun because uh, you get some number of the pieces enough in Limited that it kind of functions. And then, of course, you can build a casual constructed or maybe even competitive deck out of some of these pieces together. Right. And like we keep coming back to, there are all these cool build-arounds in the set. Right? You have Slivers, you've got this Bogru, which in black you also have Shadowborn Apostle, which is right. kind of like a crazy card. And that was there from the beginning, I think, Yeah, right? yeah. So Mark had, uh, in his original file, he wanted the, you can play any number of the cultists that summon some horrible monster. I think I think he did initially have it summoning a demon. Uh, and one thing that I that I tried to do, there's only so much space for all this stuff in a set. Like, <laughs> we also need it to you know interact with standard in proper ways and build a, a fun limited environment and all this stuff. So um, he had this card, and one of the problems with a with a one mana one one is that it's not particularly powerful and limited, which is we need commons to be powerful and limited. But of course, I wanted to make sure that you could get enough of them that it would do something. And making it rare is just not going to work, and that's where we normally put stuff we don't want to have effect. Uh, so the solution was to connect it um, to this awesome mythic demon, and by doing so, now you can see, like, okay, now they are a pair together, the cultist and the demon that that's, that, that cult summons, but you can also get the fun feel of, like, I can just fill a deck with cultists and summon all the demons. So I think that, that really worked out, and we saved a little bit of space and, and got everything to communicate there. So. You know, one thing that I don't think a lot of people think about in any direct sense, they think about it just because it's there, 
is playing limited with a core set. Largely, you know, I think limited with expansions or with blocks. Let's talk a little bit a bit about the challenge of, of designing a limited core set. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, good thing to talk about. So one thing that's uh, interesting about core sets is they're uh, roughly half reprints, um, which kind of constrains us a little bit in terms of like we can't always find exactly the best card, but we can find something that's close. And then also because they're a little bit simpler, more straightforward, even more accessible, there's a little bit less mechanical diversity. So like with something like Innistrad, you get a lot of really cool stuff going on because you have these extra mechanics that flavor like flashback, um, things like that. Here we have only the one returning mechanic, which in our case was you know a creature type really. So it's not like we get a lot of mechanical diversity there. But there are some things that we can uh, focus on that make things a little more sideways which is fun. Uh, so a couple of examples of this are we have this Auras archetype in white-black, uh, we have a life gain kind of archetype in green-white, and a couple other kind of sideways archetypes. But then we have like good core magic gameplay, like for example, uh, white-blue flyers, right? Mm-hmm. That's a thing that you'll see everywhere. Right. So to me, a core set limited is about as, as much of the sideways stuff as we can get away with while still maintaining a majority of the this is good magic gameplay. Like, red cards do what I expect them to do, black cards do what I expect them to do. When I put the black and red cards together, I get an archetype that makes sense to me. Um, so I think we, we did a pretty good job of it. Um, it was a struggle. You know, I always prefer to have more tools so that I can, you know, sure. more interesting sculptures and whatnot. But uh, it is really important that we maintain the corset as an accessible thing, as, like, kind of the next step from, from duels and as a good entry point. And also just because it's good to kind of get a little palate cleanser in between two blocks that are, you know, somewhat complicated. By the end of a block, you've digested, you know, maybe ten mechanics or, or more in the case of uh, Return of Ravnica block, for example. Right. So it's nice to kind of get a little bit of a pause, you know, go back to regular core magic gameplay, and then you can be ready for the next set of mechanics. Right. You, you brought up a, a, a term that I think is important also for the listeners, and that is accessibility yeah. with the core set. Uh, one of the things that's really important to you know the accessibility for new players is you know what they will often see on the shelves, which are intro packs. Yeah. So you uh, wanted I wanted to ask you some about the development and the ideas around these uh, creatures that support the, the five planeswalkers of the set. Yeah. So initially, actually, those creatures were not in the set. We added them in development, um, and the reason they weren't there is again it was a space issue. Right. Um, but one thing that uh, actually in discussions with Brand we had was. Uh, the success of the M13 intro packs and the, M- and the D13 decks around, uh, for example, Audric and uh, those legendary creatures at Rare, is just really powerful to have here's a deck in duels, and then there's an intro pack that is that character's deck. Right. And uh, we didn't have legendary at our disposal here because it wasn't kind of baked in the design from, from design. But what we did have were five Planeswalkers, as we, as we usually do, and each Planeswalker gets a deck in duels. So uh, one, one way that we figured we could kind of align them better was to create a cycle of five Planeswalkers creatures. So um, in the course of kind of thinking about it, we decided that the best match for for uh, Chandra and Garrick was just to reuse two of their creatures that have, that have been popular and, and kind of sell the idea of those two Planeswalker characters, right. uh, Chandra's Phoenix and Garrick's Ford. Yeah. But for uh, Ajani, uh, Jace, and Liliana, we came up with three new creatures, which really kind of sold the, the flavor of what that Planeswalker was about, or the kinds of things that Planeswalker, the, the magics they interacted with. And then those cards became the face cards uh, for those Planeswalker decks, and which, of course, are the intro packs for, for the intro decks for M14. Right. The Planeswalkers, of course, play a, a big part in magic. You know, they become the, the, the heroes, they become the faces of sets. 
Magic 2014's face is, I don't know if you know this or not, Chandra. <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything oh, for the yeah, listeners yeah, out there. Yeah, it wasn't Garrett? It wasn't Garrett. Not, not, no, this is Chandra all the way. Yeah, said, yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Chandra Pyromaster. I mean, one of the one of the big cards that come out of the set. Chandra Pyromaster is a two red-red. Starts out with four loyalty. She has three abilities. It's plus one. Chandra Pyromaster deals one damage to target player and one damage to up to one target creature that player controls. That creature can't block this turn. Her second ability is zero. Exile the top card of your library. You may play it this turn. And then the last ability is minus seven. Exile the top ten cards of your library. Choose an instant or sorcery card. Exile this way and copy it three times. You may cast copies without paying their mana costs. So where did where did Chandra come from in the set? So um, initially, design knew that they wanted a couple of new Planeswalkers. They can't remake all of them every year, but uh, they knew that they wanted to try out making uh, a new Chandra and a new Garrick. And so uh, as they kind of looked at it and, and thought about you know, which, which of these characters might uh, be a good face for the set or, or be a good uh, character to support with other cards inside the set, um, they decided, okay, Chandra looks like we can, we can do something cool with her. Um, everyone on the design team was excited about a new Chandra, and I like Chandra a lot. I think she's a really cool character, so I, I agree. Yeah, let's let's try to make Chandra into something really special here. So um, I knew I wanted to make, and I also had had some a little to do not with the original Chandra, but with Chandra Ablaze and with um, Chandra the Firebrand. So I was excited to try to take another stab at a, at a Chandra, try to get her into a uh, competitive level and, and possibly kind of a build around card too, so that there's a lot of different ways she could she could hit. Right. Um, so we started with. The idea of can we make a we actually try to make a three mana Chandra along with some more expensive Chandras, but one of the problems we've had with red planeswalkers in the past is that just doing straight direct damage is subtly powerful in a way that's not fun. Um, just having a recurring damage source on your on your side of the table is just it's very frustrating to play against and it's not very there's not a lot of decisions to make necessarily. Right. Uh, so that that was frustrating because it was very difficult to get something in the right spot. So actually, um, I got some of the designers together, just the core design team, and Mark Rosewater along with Dan Emmons suggested, hey, one thing that we haven't really focused on with Chandra is the fact that she's passionate. Like she she really wants to like get things. She's impatient a little bit, right? She wants to get right. things done right now. Um, and that's where this idea of um, drawing a card this turn, so to speak. With the, her zero ability came from, and I was really excited. I just think something we could, you know, build around and make into a competitive card. Um, and so we tried that out for quite a while, and it worked out really well. It was, it was lots of fun. There were decisions to be made, and it was kind of fun to have a pure red card that gave you some late game power. Right. And then we built around that the idea that you could construct your deck in a certain way to make her ultimate really powerful, and you could also be more aggressive so that her um, her mugging style ability, where she makes the creature unable to block, would be would be strong as well. So I feel like there's a lot of different ways to go with Chandra. So I'm really hoping that people will find some decks for her. Um, and we'll see. Time will tell. Great, great. How about Garrick? So you you know you made this awesome new Chandra. And, but there's a brand new Garrick set too, and he's That's a six true. mana planeswalker. Tell me uh, how he came into play. Yeah, so um, we actually tried a couple lower mana cost Garricks as well, like a three mana Garrick and another four mana Garrick. And what we found was um, the previous Garricks have actually just been so well designed that it's very difficult to find a space for Garrick to shine. Um, you know, I, I know Garrick Wildspeaker was one of the most uh, powerful and adored of the original Lorem 5 planeswalkers, and then uh, his updates of Garrick Primal Hunter and Garrick Villainous, the, the double faced version, are both very powerful and, and very unique in their own ways. So uh, what we decided was, well, Garrick is this Beastmaster, and we can just go over the top with him. Like, what would a six-mana or even seven-mana Garrick look like? And uh, one thing that we we thought was, well, he's really cool as a way to interact with creature cards. Is there a way we can kind of 
pull that out the top, like make it really exciting and fun. Um, I, I came up with this dramatic entrance ability, which is his, I guess actually I should just say what the Garrick is, so we, we're all talking about the same thing. Sure. Uh, so the Garrick in the set is Garrick, color of beast. He's six mana, four and two green, for, uh, starts at four loyalty. His plus one is reveal the top five cards of your library, and then you put all the creature cards you reveal in this way into your hand, and the rest on the, on the bottom, uh, which is very powerful, obviously. And then he has a minus three to uh, put a green creature from your hand onto the battlefield. And then he has a minus seven, which lets you get an emblem, which is uh, when you cast a creature spell, you can search your library for another creature and put it on the battlefield. So uh, one of the things that's really cool about making a six-man planeswalker is you can just have a really powerful effect on the board right away. Right. And that's what his minus three does, obviously. But then he's just kind of a card advantage machine, like churns through your deck, getting more and more creatures uh, with his plus one. So I feel like there's there's definitely a lot of space there for making kind of a, a big green deck, I would say, like try to put the most powerful creature you can onto the battlefield. And there's also space for him to be at the top of kind of a curve deck where throughout the early turns you're playing a lot of creatures, maybe your opponent's trying to get rid of them with Day of Judgment or Spring Break or things like that, but you can always reload using his plus one, which is really fun. So I feel like he, he, had, he got into a good space. I know Six Mana Planeswalker has a high hurdle to get over, but I think he has the tools that you need to make a deck work around that. Definitely seems like he'll hit a little harder than Chandra Blaze did. <laughs> yeah, let's hope so. Not to diss your planeswalker. No, I mean, it's, it's, Chandra Blaze is uh, is a quirky planeswalker. These two, Chandra and Garrick, are certainly more in the competitive space, I think. Absolutely. Your first lead development, how'd it feel? Good, really good. Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of nail biting. Like, uh, it's definitely times when I felt like I was running out of time, or I just, I mean, at the end of it, I felt like compared to Zach, who made M13, like, Man, I just haven't done a play test. Like, I mean, he wasn't around for me to berate, but like, I definitely was like pulling, pulling it. I guess not pulling my hair out because I'm bald. But, uh, <laughs> but I was definitely like, wow, I just don't have time to get everything done. But in the end, like, uh, we definitely, I had a lot of support from the other people in R&D, and that really helped me kind of feel good about where the set was. Um, and yeah, when I saw all the cards in the slideshow, it was like kind of a relief. Like, it was really exciting to see people. Like get really excited about the cards they saw and cheer when they saw Chandra. So yeah, it was it was awesome. Even though you've been staring at the card file for months and, and you've seen you know proofs up to the slideshow, is there something special about seeing the slideshow with the members of R and D? Yeah, there is. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, it's fun to see like when we're all just being our magic player selves and like getting excited about particular cards. Like, oh, I really want to build the commander deck around that. Or like, right. ooh, well, I really like this Tronic Resonator card. I can't wait to break it. And it's like, I hear the rules manager saying, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not what I was saying in our meeting about rules. Yeah, it's fun to just like get everyone, because like we're all obviously magic players and just love the game. So it's, it's fun to be in a room with everyone who helped contribute and then just kind of get that feel like, yes, we accomplished it. This is, this is a done set. Well, great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, Thank you, listeners, for taking the time to listen to this podcast. You can find more on the Daily MTG website. You can contact us, email dailymtgcast at wizards.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm TrickMTG. I'm Gavin Verhey, no space in the middle. And I'm Dave Tron. And uh, once again, Dave, thanks for coming, and we will see you in a couple months. Yeah, thanks, guys.